Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. We've examined how that we need a spatial context of peace for the seed, and that um, seed loses its potential if it's not sown within the environment of peace, and we've examined uh, several case studies. Um, I'm just going to go through the note quickly on page two. I think I'm not sure which note you have, but these notes have changed in the past recent days. Uh, in any case, we looked at Abraham's action to rescue Lot was motivated by a desire for Lot's welfare. It wasn't the pursuit of wealth; it was the pursuit of helping a brother in trouble. And in that process, he is enriched. And we encouraged you to seek out for the welfare of your brother. The principle is live in that economy, live in that domain where you are constantly looking out for the well-being of brothers. Um, and especially sometimes doing that at great sacrificial cost, when it costs you something. Putting your own destiny on the line to, to rescue a brother. And in that process, you are enriched. Then we secondly looked at Cain and Abel, how that uh, Cain kills Abel, and what happens? The ground does not respond to Cain. That's the judgment on God, of God upon him. The ground does not respond to you. Why? Because you've, you've murdered your brother. And murder was prohibited based on the fact that it was a disesteem, a disrespect for the image of God in your brother, right? So the Cain spirit is a murderous spirit. And the scripture says very clearly, be not like Cain, or exactly the King James Version says, do not follow the way of Cain. Right? And part of the way of Cain is to disrespect the image in a brother, specifically a brother whose offering was more acceptable than yours. Right? His Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's offering is rejected. So Cain represents somebody that cannot celebrate the favor of God upon a brother. Right? Cannot rejoice when your brother is favored and, and blessed. Instead, jealousy, envy, bitterness, um, hatred that ultimately degenerates to murder um, is the result. So when you hate your brother, listen carefully. This is, I'm quoting Genesis 9.26. Murder is prohibited on the basis of the fact that to murder someone is to disrespect the fact that that person bears God's image. The scripture is very clear about that. You murder someone, it means you, 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 you don't appreciate the fact that that person bears God's mark. 1 John 3.15 equates murder to hatred to murder. Right? So when you hate somebody... Equally then, it tells me that you have no appreciation for the extent of the, the manifestation of the image of God within that, that person. So to kill is easy because you've disesteemed the value of someone. When, you've take, when you take a life, it means um, you can do something so coldly without conscience, 
like we see today, is to remove the life from, from somebody else. Um, that testifies to the fact that you, your estimation on the life of that person is poor. Right? Hence, you have no regard or no even um, perception of what it is to recognize the image of God. Right? So then, if, if I hate Sean, that tells me I'm blind. It tells me my spiritual IQ is very low. It also tells me my spiritual perception is very low. Because if I cannot recognize the Christ in him and, 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 and submit to hatred of him, then it suggests that my spiritual perception of the image of God that he carries is negligible. It's non-existent. Right? And so hence, in Cain and Abel's physical context, murder is easy when the image is disesteemed. But if, within our culture, I consistently prioritize the fact that Clinton is a bearer of the image, so I will not quickly hate. Why? Because my priority, my appreciation, my esteem for him is the fact that he's a bearer of God. He's a bearer of God's image and he's a bearer of God's likeness. So we ought not to follow the way of Cain, who killed his brother Abel. The question is, are you your brother's keeper? That was the question that God asked Cain. Are you your brother's keeper? Right? And God is the one that asked him that question. And so to encourage you, you are your brother's keeper. And keeping your brother means respecting the image of God in him. Keeping your brother means celebrating him when his offering is accepted and yours is rejected. Celebrating him when he finds favor with God, but you seemingly are in disfavor. But celebrating the fact that your brother is advancing in the Lord. Now, um, let's go to page four, if you're with me, of my notes. But the next example we, we looked at was Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob um, had to reconcile with, with Esau. And before reconciling with him, he had to cross the Jabbok, the ford, the river, which means emptying, divesting himself of any attempt to justify himself. He tricked his brother out of the birthright, and um, he had to cross the Jabbok, empty himself, and so reconcile with an estranged brother, an estranged brother. Now, you must remember, um, the judgment on Cain is this. You can plant seed, but the ground does not respond to you. Why does your seed lose potential? Because you've disrespected peaceful relationships with your brother. You've disrespected the fact that you need to honor the image of God in your brother. So when that principle is violated, seed potential is, seed potential is aborted. When Jacob reconciles with Esau, he too sends seed. He sends gifts ahead of himself. Not so? Right? Sends, he sows something in a bid, like a peace offering, to reconcile with Esau. His seed works. Jacob's seed works. Why does it work? Because his seed sown is in a bid to reconcile. Attended with his seed was the desire to find my brother again, to sort the issues out. Right? But before he does that, he meets with the Lord at Peniel, where he wrestles with the Lord, seeks the blessing, he gets the blessing, and he advances to Jabbok, crosses it, which means 
empties himself of any pride, arrogance, self-justification. And there finds wonderful reconciliation with, with Esau. His words to Esau was this. He goes, in your face, I see the face of God. Where Cain failed in disrespecting the image of God in Abel, Jacob passed the test in recognizing the fact that even Esau is a bearer of the face or the image of God. Right? I hope you're seeing this. Right? Right? So, you may ask, but this is Esau. This is the man whose meaning of his name means red. This is the man who Hebrews 12, we read this morning in our dialogues, describes as a fornicator. Do not be like Esau, the writer of the book of Hebrews says. Right? He sold his birthright. Esau is the man who doesn't apprise spiritual things highly. Can sell something so precious to satisfy his physical appetite. Esau is a man given over to the flesh. When Isaac warned Jacob not to marry daughters of Heth, of the Canaanites, next verse, and Jacob obeyed. He warned Esau, and the Bible says, when Esau saw the daughters of Canaan displeased his father, he went into them to marry them. So Esau is on every front a very bad representation of the image of God. Yet, Jacob says, because when I see your face, I see your face as the face of God. Right? Jacob proves that you can see, even in your most carnal brother, the image of God. Hmm? What have you seen in the person that riled you the most? What have you seen in the person, which in your opinion, is the most poorest representation of God on a number of fronts? Yet Jacob can still say to that kind of person, because I see your face as the face of God. What the Bible says, as a man, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the face of his friend. Whenever it's face to face, there's always a sharpening. So, think of your greatest enemy. Can you still see the image of God in them? Now listen carefully. Can you still see the representation of God in them? The person can be negative on all fronts, but you in your own mind must surmise this. You must conclude this. That God is using that brother, even in his carnality, to represent God's nature to me, to shape image in me. What you see might be negative, but you must regard it as the, 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 the working of God's face to sharpen me is being presented to me in order to shift me. It doesn't justify what the person is doing, but from your, it's always your perspective that is very, very important. Val Appenau read a beautiful psalm in our dialogues this morning. It really touched my heart. When I came home, I studied it. Psalm 35. Um, it says, David laments about how people are attacking him. Um, he says, I am for peace. They, they are for, for hatred. They're always attacking him, attacking him, attacking him. And you know what his attitude towards them? He says, but I, I even fasted for them. And he says, my prayer returned into my bosom. I fasted for them. And he says, because I regarded them as a brother and a friend. 
two things. My view of them was brother and a friend. But when I am for peace, they are for war. But my attitude towards them is still, they're my brothers. Right? It's the most beautiful psalm. You must read it today. Right? I started this afternoon. Fantastic, fantastic view that David had towards an enemy. And he, he modeled it so well in his, in his attitude towards his greatest detractor, which is King Saul. Not Saul. And remember, I said this to you. Your greatest test today is going to be your attitude towards an enemy. Greatest test. So I'm going to ask you, can you see the face of God in your enemy? Can you see the face of God even in someone that is totally, totally, from all accounts uh, of scriptural criteria, not reflective of the image of God? But yet, you still say, okay, I still see your face as the face of God. Have you seen God's face recently? In your greatest enemy, in your greatest detractor? Right? You see, it's only beholding you are changed. The principle, the Second Corinthians 3.18 principle. Whenever you see God's face, you become changed. So if you have the capacity to see God's face, even in your, the, 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 the devices of your greatest enemy, guess what? You're simply positioning yourself for great transformation. That's all you are doing. Right? That's all you are doing. But what are you consistently ensuring? There's peace for your seed. Peace for my seed. I, uh, I will consistently ensure that in the entirety of my life, I'm in a peaceful position. So my enemy comes. Esau can come. Cain can come. Right? I will ensure that my, my, my view and my responses to them are always scriptural and always Biblical. We must read Psalm 35 before we enter tonight. Maybe we'll, we'll read the whole Psalm towards at the end of, of, of the study. Then we looked at Job. Remember Job? Right? When was Job's fortunes turned? Job's fortunes were turned when he prayed for his friends. Not so? Right? Job's fortunes were turned when he prayed for his friends. What kinds of friends were these? Three of them um, inaccurately appraised him grossly misrepresented him, inaccurately judged him at the height of his greatest personal trial, right? And he, God, it was the time in his trial where God decided, I'm about to restore and turn everything you've lost. But God was waiting for one attitude in the man for, for him to do those things. The attitude was, I want to see how you respond to everyone that inaccurately assessed you up to this point. Please remember, this is, Gen- this is Job 42. This is in the, the, almost the last chapter of the book. Right? So, um, it's after a long season of trial, and literally the entire book is, is about the commentary of each friend, what they said to him. Right? And they inaccurately assess him. And God is waiting for Job's response, biblical accurate response towards his friends. Job's response towards his friends. God, you must read the context. I didn't put all the scriptures in your notes, but read the context. Even God is angry at the friends. God is saying, you must judge my servant. Da, 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 da. Now go to my, my servant. Perhaps he will pray for you that you might be, and make sacrifices for you. That, you can, that I can accept you. And what is Job's response? If it was a typical modern day Christian, <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah. Now you're coming. It's time for my restoration. 
Now you're coming. Right? But Job's typical response is he prays for his friends. And the Bible says when God restored the fortunes of Job, when he prayed for the people that most grossly attacked him and misrepresented him. Okay? Now question. Was Job a morally upright and blemishless man? Was. I said to you, perfection today is not going to be defined in terms of morality. It includes it. You must, you must be pure, holy, and circumspect and righteous before the Lord. But where, where God is taking the church, perfection today is largely going to be defined by your relationships to people, how you interact with them, and how you associate with them. But more so, all people, but more so enemies, persecutors, greatest detractors. What is your position towards those people? So Job proves, because Job 1 describes him as an upright man, he hates evil, is righteous, he walks before the Lord blamelessly. So this guy is perfect as far as his personal purity is concerned, but he has the potential to fall relationally. And if you, you can be fine morally, but if you fall relationally, you're going to abort the fortunes that God has in store for you. Right? This is very, very important. I shared some of these thoughts with the church in Cape Town on Sunday, and I see how serious a problem this is globally, worldwide. This, for me, is like the last frontier of perfection. This is like the last leg of perfection. If you can pass these aspects of perfection, I'm telling you, you're well on your way to spiritual maturity. Well on your way to spiritual maturity. I'll read a few verses for you on Sunday in reference to that. Right? Perfection is largely defined in terms of your capacity to relate to enemies, biblically. Right? So Job's enemies, Job's fortunes are restored when he prays for his greatest detractors. That is when God sees this man now is so, I mean, he's, he was always like me. That's why I challenged the enemy. Have you considered my servant, Job? But I think something was uh, um, provoked within the heart of God when he saw, check Job's response to those who misunderstood him. Check the heart of my servant. Check how merciful he is. Right? Check how gracious he is. Then we looked at um, Malachi 2 verse 13. And we had a demonstration here between husband and wife, remember? I want to go to that again, just to mention the point. In Malachi 2, 13 and 14, there is the people weeping at the altar. Why? Because your offering is not accepted. Right? God says, um, why? And God's very plain. He says, because you have been unfaithful to the wife of your youth, and she was your wife by covenant. Right? And she's weeping at the altar. God is, in essence, saying, I'm paraphrasing, Whose weeping do I hear? God says, I don't hear your weeping while your offering, your seed has lost its power. I hear the weeping of the aggrieved wife who has hurt in the process. Right? So if there's any kind of infidelity in the marriage at any level, your seed offering loses its power. It becomes non-acceptable by God. Why? Because, again, the, please try and weave the, the principle throughout these case studies. The moment relationships at any level are violated, seed loses its power. Whatever level. Whatever level. Whether it's Abram and his attitude to Lot, whether it's Cain and his attitude towards his 
his brother, whether it's Jacob and his attitude to Esau, whether it's Job and his attitude towards people that misunderstand him, their attitude towards key relationships either amplify their seed or diminish their seed potential. Right? So especially within a marriage, I want to encourage those of you who are married to be faithful to your spouse at all levels because that will ensure that your offering becomes acceptable to the Lord. God says, I will not reject your offering. Right? I hear the weeping of the aggrieved wife more than I hear your weeping of why your offering was rejected. Not so? Let me just say this. Your wife is also your brother. Your husband is also your brother. You know what Matthew 5 says? If you stand at the altar and you present your offering, and there you remember that your brother has ought against you. Leave your offering at the altar first. Everyone say first. I'll talk more about this next week. First be reconciled. I just love that phrase. First be reconciled. Say with me. First be reconciled. First is an apostolic concept. We know that protos, proton, the apostolic principle. The word first tells me it's an apostolic principle. So your offerings got no power at the altar if you're presenting the offering in the context of an irreconciled relationship. Right? Your offering loses, your, your offering loses power immediately. So it says, so leave the offering and first. In other words, first indicates to me priority. God always prioritizes reconciled relationships above the administration of any offering. And, and I like what it says. First, first means there's second. Not so? So the, in order of things is, first, go be reconciled with your brother. And I, in, in this context, your spouse is also your brother, in case you forget. Right? So that scripture also applies to marriage. Right? It is issues in the marriage. And this not only applies to offerings. You can be in the worship team. You can be ministering. You can be a Sunday school teacher. Uh, you can be any portfolio. Your, your, your acceptability of any gifting offered to God is not acceptable if it's based or built on the foundation of an, a broken down relationship. So find, that's why, you know, the marriage relationship is one of the most powerful ever. Two or three of you shall agree as upon touching any one thing, it shall be done for you. But neutralize that and you neutralize the power attendant with it. Hmm? You know what, I, I really want this church all your seeds, let me talk money, financial offerings, must go to another level of reward because it flows from the basis of absolute honesty, faithfulness, fidelity between husband and wife. It amplifies the acceptability of the offering and this, there's peace for the seed. No peace, no power of the seed. Hmm? Not so? Very important, eh? You quiet tonight? Fine to say amen. I shared with the church in Cape Town. Um, amen is uh, also the name of Christ. He's the faithful and the amen. Revelation calls him. So when you say amen, you're not saying, yes, preach my father, I agree with what you're saying. And we must learn to say amen because amen means I concur. Hmm? But when you say amen, you're not just saying what you're saying is true. What you're saying is, what you are saying is, so in keeping with the nature of Christ himself. Amen. Because he is the amen. Amen is not just something you say. Are you saying amen to what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, 
I want to encourage you. One thing that I'm troubled about here locally is the absence of spirit life. You must be honest. People are coming dead, not having prayed, etc. This must change, brethren. Must change. Your spirit must be buoyant. You must be in the word consistently. You must be a person of prayer. Because your spirit catches word. And you can only concur spirit to spirit. If I'm spirit-filled, preaching spirit, preaching life, but if you sit there, lifeless means nothing to you. right? And sometimes it will be manifested even by the absence of an amen. I'm not saying we must say amen just for, for, for life, but it's, it's a biblical, proper response. Right? I'm going to write a document called the amen. I think I must do a study on the amen and bring back the culture of amen to the house. I think we've lost it somewhat. But it's a resonance within your spirit that concurs with truth. But you cannot do it secularly, clinically, or as a natural man. You can do it as a natural man, it'll mean nothing. But your amen must be purposeful. It must be powerful. And when you do it, it will, with great understanding, it will amplify what I call spirit life in a place. Amen? Hmm. It's a good place to say amen. You missed it. First be reconciled. Then, I think Joseph, have we done Joseph? I don't think we've done Joseph. We mentioned it. Have we done it? Benjamin, etc. We've done that? So, just make one or two statements here. I think we've, we've covered Joseph. Joseph, Joseph said, um, he gave a series of tests to his brothers, and he said to them, when he held back Simeon, he incarcerated Simeon, remember? And he said to them, go fetch the youngest boy, Benjamin. Remember? What does Simeon mean? To hear. Simeon always has a reference to the capacity to hear. The prophetic dynamic is imprisoned. So you don't hear God. God's voice is, is imprisoned until you get Benjamin here, which is the son of the, the right hand. Benjamin means son of my father's right hand. Right? So it, it, it's like only, and we've, we've labeled this point so often, only when you get the full complement of the gathering of brothers does, is the voice of the Lord released. Simon is released. Right? The voice of the Lord is, is, is activated. Long story short, um, Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. Because he realized, hey, I've lost Joseph. Well, he thought Joseph's dead. I've lost Joseph about... I think it was about 13 years ago. Joseph was 17 or so, I think. I stand to be corrected, when he was sold into slavery. At the time of the reconciliation with the brothers, Joseph was 30. So at least 13 years have elapsed. I think, you know, why did God allow Jacob to grieve for 13 years? Think about it. God permitted him to grieve. God could have come on day one after, after Joseph was sold. And say, Jacob, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Don't worry, your son's not dead. But I've got a serious plan afoot here. But Jacob, God leaves a father grieving for 13 years. A good man grieving. Right? He thinks his boy is dead. Yet the boy is alive. Right? So Joseph, Jacob is in this grief, grief-stricken strait for a long period of time. Grief settles within his spirit. So obviously, 
when the brothers come back and say, the man, I like what they said. They don't know it's Joseph. They can't call him. They said, the man said to us, you are not going to see my face again, right, until you release Benjamin. Until Benjamin comes. Not so? So when Benjamin comes, listen carefully, what does, jo- what does Jacob say to them? He refuses for a while, but the famine intensifies. And the need drives him to release the boy. He realizes we need to survive, right? Jacob sends, here's the key, Jacob sends Benjamin plus gifts, money. You must read the account of how much. Because he's worried now, I need to get, preserve the life of my sons. He in fact gives him gifts, money, his own money, and the money that Joseph gave them when they left to come back. Just to appease him. So he's offering. Think about it as peace for the seed. Jacob releases seed. Jacob releases seed. What impresses Joseph was not the seed or the value of what they bring. What impresses Joseph was the sight of Benjamin. He sees all the camels coming. He sees his entourage. But when he sees a brother in the midst of brothers, his heart gets turned. More so, after he tests him for the very, he wants to make doubly sure these brothers have now turned relationally. When Judah, when Judah offers for himself to be locked up in prison, to release, to take Benjamin's place, a final test for them was, I'll lock up Benjamin, right? Um, and then Judah reacts. Judah says, no, no, no. Take me instead of the boy. Why? His famous words, because the life of my father is bound up with the life of the lad. So I preserve the life of the lad. I'm willing to die. Substitute. I'm the high priest. It's a substitutionary principle. I'm acting as the priest. I'm acting as, literally acting as firstborn, although he's fourth, right? I'm acting as firstborn to preserve the family. And so he says, I'll take my brother's place. Yes, because I love my brother, but I know that if this guy doesn't go back, my father's so grief-stricken. If he sees Benjamin's not with us, guess what? The man is probably going to die. He'll just probably uh, suffer a heart attack. And when, J- when Joseph sees that in Judah, now if you know the principle of representation, Judah literally is representing all the brothers when he speaks. Right? And the voice of Judah is powerful. The voice of Judah can change kings' minds. We are the Judah company. But the voice of Judah, his voice is powerful because of his heart commitment to preserve the life of the son of the right hand. Benjamin. Ben, son, Jamin, right hand. Benjamin, son of my father's strength. Right? Son of my father's right hand. It's amazing when you read it. Please take the time to read the account. Fantastic. I read it every now and then in the story. There's so many other truths embedded in there. I don't want to speak now because it's not in keeping with our theme. So many powerful lessons to learn. But Joseph said, you're not going to see my face again unless all the brothers are present. What does Joseph represent? Christ. He represents security, provision. All of these things. You will not see this, this prosperous dimension until you show serious commitment to the welfare of the brothers. To such a degree where you're willing to um, let yourself be imprisoned, let others go. 
not going to see prosperity. This is very serious, brethren. Not going to see the kinds of breakthrough we want. God, you know, and I just don't know why God is allowing us to camp here. I was even thinking this is like conflicting with the overall theme, which is primacy of the word. I wanted to do meditation on how to study the scriptures, but God hijacked that process and is causing us to focus upon relationships because I really believe this is what we need now, presently. This is the final frontier for your spiritual perfection. This is the last segment in your spiritual maturity. If you can demonstrate to others and to God that I'm willing to adopt the godly biblical position in reference to my brothers, I'm telling you, you will see the face of Joseph again. You will see the face of Christ. You will see the breakthroughs that God has in store for you. Okay? Okay, too long there. But very necessary to repeat these things. Let me just read this. I'm just going to read this one verse. In Genesis 43, 15, the men took this present, the present that Jacob gave them, and it, they took double the money in their hand. Right? Their money and the one that Joseph gave them when they left Egypt in the first place. Maybe with money in their sacks. They brought all of that back, presents, and it says, and Benjamin. Took all the gifts and Benjamin. And they arose and they went down to Egypt to stand before Joseph. It's like in the midst of all of these offerings was a brother. In the midst of your offering, your brotherly disposition and attitude towards brotherly relationships must be thoroughly represented. What impresses God is not the gift, is your commitment to your brother's welfare. Amen? The context in which God favors... Next one, sorry. Where are we? Okay, let's do this Paul thing. Get this out of the way. We've had this before. I don't know where you are. Can somebody help us where you are in the old note? You're all on the same, we're all on the same page. L- uh, figuratively. <laughs> okay, not literally. Ten. On the new page, it's eight. The new note is eight. On the old, it's ten. <clears throat> now, you're hearing these. Paul did not pursue the open door, but had no rest in his spirit until he sought out Titus, his, his brother. The reference is 2 Corinthians 2, 13 and 12 and 13. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking leave of them, I went to Macedonia. Now, it's amazing. The, I just want to draw the principles from this verse. Extract symbolic or prophetic principles. Paul is saying that when he came to Troas for the gospel, that a great uh, door was opened to him in the Lord. And it seems like um, an admixture of emotion here. Because you should be excited that a door is open, not so. Great door is open, powerful opportunity. But the rest of the verse seems to have a sad note. But I had no rest in my spirit because I could not find Titus mine. Titus, my brother. So Paul was not ecstatic about an open door in the context of not being able to find a brother. For him, in terms of the priority, finding the brother was more important than pursuing the open door. 
He demonstrates to us that priority. Okay? So, I wrote here, what gives you no rest in your spirit? For Paul, it was the inability to find a brother. Right? Do you have unrest in your spirit? Now listen carefully. You must have rest for your soul. I'm not talking about unrest in the soul. I'm talking about groaning in your spirit. This is the groan in the spirit man. This is not like uh, you are emotionally down. Because it's not talking about the soul yet. Paul says, this whole experience took place in my, in my spirit man. I, my spirit man was not in a place of composure or rest. Why? I could not find or locate my, my brother, Titus. Okay? And I just wrote here, we have to locate each other relationally. Have to find each other relationally. Right? Find your brother. Sometimes we know each other by name, but we can't find each other relationally. Right? We're too busy pursuing our open doors. <laughs> We're too busy pursuing and advancing those aspects of our personal lives or ministry. Life is too busy. There are too many great things of the Lord. And I'm saying just press the pause button on that and take the time to find someone. Take the time to invite someone for coffee, for lunch. Take the time to phone someone. How are you? Take the time to know your brothers better. These things are very, very, very important for brotherhood and for the building of the, the family ethos in the house. Amen. Would you do this? Take the time. Right? Don't, if you don't normally do what you normally do on a Saturday. Say, this Saturday, I'm dedicated. Let me use Gail there at the back. I'm dedicating to my sister Gail. Don't know her that much. And her family, there's Terrence there. I'm, I'm, I want to get to know them. I'm going to find my brother. Tell you when God sees this thing in the house that this community is, is about finding each other, that the breakthroughs will be an automatic thing because how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in one, right? To dwell in oneness. There the Lord does what? Commands a blessing. Blessings flow when relationships are intact, right? They just, things just will automatically, automatically happen. But it starts at the home. Make sure these things are right between husband and wife, right? And I say to the marriages here, it's illegitimate by this time for you to still entertain tension in your relationship. After all we've heard by this week, after so long, issues should have been resolved, right? Why? If you're not, you're holding up the works for your lives plus for the corporate experience, right? You've got to sort these things out. And that for your marriage, I would say, Put the pause button on all else you're doing and sort the issue out. Right? Don't pursue the open door. Find your brother. And I said to you, your spouse is also your brother. Don't forget that. So if you're married, you're sitting next to your, just say you're my brother. Let me just quickly summarize point two there. You see, he couldn't locate Titus and simultaneously the door was open. Right? Couldn't locate Titus, and simultaneously the door was open. And when he weighed priority, in his mind, finding Titus was more... And this was a door for the gospel. Wouldn't, wouldn't, which apostle wouldn't want to pursue that? This was breakthrough. And he says, no, I want to find Titus, my brother. Right? The, 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 the emboldened portion in the middle of paragraph 2, pursuit of divinely orchestrated ministry opportunities must not become an obsession at the expense 
of breaking or not maintaining divinely ordained relationships. Right? You don't pursue ministry advancement at the expense of not maintaining or even violating certain relationships. You know, in the world, it's I put you down to get ahead. Right? In the kingdom, it's like the opposite. Eh? In the world, if it's open door, I'm going for the door, no matter who I bulldoze along my doorway. But in the kingdom, is door wide open, let's go. Says, but the priority in my spirit is, where's my brother? Where's Titus? And in this context, Titus is Paul's son in the Lord. But your son is also your brother. Please, I'm just stressing this. Your husband's also your brother. Your wife is also your brother. You, my sons, you're still my brother. I'm your father, but I'm also your brother. Right? Don't forget. Right? So, you, you know, in the old days, we used to call each other Brother Randall, Brother So-and-so. I went to our ex-church uh, a few years uh, back, but from a few years back, about two weeks or three weeks ago. And some people there, when I called him, still, Brother Randall, Brother Randall. You know, the concept was nice. Reminding, it should be a reminder. Hey, this is my brother. This is my ach. Hebrew word for brother is ach. A-C-H. Or you like the Greek, it's adelpho. Adelpho test, womb. From the same womb. One who issues from the same loins. Right? But third point, quickly. The open door was not to be pursued until Titus was found. It would seem that Paul was not content to enter the door alone. Circle the word alone. But with Titus. And this highlights the principle that our movements into great opportunities for accelerating God's global purposes would now be a corporate one, circle corporate one, not a one-man show. Paul realized if this door must be entered, it's got to be entered with Titus. So his mindset is, I will not enter it alone, but I will draw Titus in with me. Fourth point quickly, I'm going to summarize because of time. Paul realized that the open door had to be entered jointly and not individually. He demonstrates the desire to bring others. Circle, bring others. Bring others into opportunities that God supernaturally opened for him. Now, please just, just pay attention here. So, yes, Paul. Yeah, let me just use my example. Okay, I'm the apostle Paul. And I'm the man of God for the hour. I'm the apostle to the church. So, great and effectual doors open to me for advancement of ministry. But one of the, the points that I'm stressing now is my heart is um, it's open for me. He says for me. But what is open for me, I will take Titus into. Right? It shows an unselfish spirit. You know, sometimes, even in, in the business world, if you get the deal, you keep quiet about it. Nobody must know about this. I must be the greatest beneficiary or, or from this, this endeavor. But in the kingdom... Um, you, you, your, your mindset is, I will always bring brothers into doors of opportunity that were open to me privately. It's a different spirit. Eh? Your, your heart and your desire is for the corporate welfare. It's always for the benefit of the brothers. And i ask a question here at the end of the paragraph. Let me just read the whole thing. I believe that God will open many doors of multifaceted opportunities for us when we desire to enter these in company and not so be preoccupied with benefits that might accrue to us personally as individuals. Don't be so focused on what am I going to get out of it for myself. Be focused on how can I bring this open door benefit to as many people as possible. 
And the question that I ask is, when last did you take someone with you through an open door that God opened for you? The door didn't open for them, God opened for you, but when did you take your brother in with you? Right? So, it's like, God blesses you because you have found favor, but your heart is, yes, God, you're blessed because I have found favor, but I will take others in with me. shows that you're not selfish. Hmm? You, don't, you just don't want to be the one standing to testify one day. Hey, God broke through for me. Your greatest testimony should be, see how many others I've brought in with me into what God opened for me. That's what David said, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name too. David always wanted to, he, he, if he had a, a personal, private, individual experience, he always wanted that to be the experience of all of Israel. So his cry is, I'm not satisfied to worship God alone, but magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name too, together. Amen? Let's exalt his name together. Right. Now, in fact, on that note, let's go right down to, I don't know, where is it in your note? In the new note, it should be right at the last penultimate point. Peaceful seeds, at the bottom of page 11 of the new note. It's headed, peaceful seed leads, lead brothers into breakthrough. Because it bears reference to what I'm just saying. You got that point? Peaceful seeds lead brothers into breakthrough. This is Genesis 38. Verse 27. Are you all there? Peaceful seeds lead brothers into breakthrough. Listen to this. Very important. The time came, Genesis 38, 27. The time came, this is Tamar. The time came for her, labor, Tamar. And there were twins in a womb. And when she was in labor, one put out the hand. The midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. So twins are about to come out of a womb. So the one baby pushes forth, and to, to identify who came out first, they tie the scarlet thread around the, the hand. Okay? But, verse 29, the baby doesn't come out. He draws back into the womb with the thread. Right? He drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out, the other guy. Right? And she said, now the, the midwife says, what a breach you have made for yourself. Talking to this other guy that came on first now. Prophesying almost. What a breach. Breach breakthrough. Hey, you are brother of breakthrough. You've broken through. What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And Perez means to burst forth to breakthrough. Right? Typically. Oh, by the way, how did Jacob come out? Jacob and Esau were twins too. Esau came out first, but how did Jacob come out? Like this. Holding his brother's heel. Hey, I want what you got. <laughs> like, like. But yeah, it's a bit different. Listen carefully. Perez breaks through a uh, scarlet thread. Not Perez. His brother breaks through. They put a scarlet thread. He retracts into the womb. The other one pushes out. The midwife says, sure, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, your name will be called Breakthrough or Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was... Zerah, okay, Zerah. Now, in the King James, the New King James Version of the Bible, that verse that says, what a breach, when the midwife said, what a breach you've made for yourself. In the New King James, it's actually a question. The question is, 
How did you break through? How did you break through? Now, who, who came out first? Who burst the womb? Zerah, not so? Zerah burst the womb. You know what the meaning of firstborn is? One of the meanings of firstborn is he who bursts the womb, who bursts the womb of his, of his mother, and he, he breaks forth, he breaks through to pave the way for other kids to be born later on. It's the firstborn son, the firstborn principle. So technically, who was born first? Zerah. But Perez pushes through after Zerah retracts his, his hand. Now, interestingly, Zerah means, the meaning has reference to shining or brightness, but the root meaning of Zerah, or especially Z, Z-E-R, Zerah, literally has reference to seed. Everyone say seed. Seed, right? Now, I wrote in your notes, when the midwife asked him in the New King James, how did you break through? What, do you, what, is, what would have his response been? If he could talk. If, 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 if Perez could talk and the midwife says, how did you break through? What would he have said? Think with me. What would he have said? My brother pushed through first, paved the way I just came out. Right? He did all the work. He did all the hard work. I just came through. Right? Right? So your seed gives you the power of breakthrough. Right? Your seed gives you the power of breakthrough. Now, Zerah seed who pushes forth first. Seed only is powerful in its, potent, in its innate potential. When that seed has in it the desire to see its brother's breakthrough. So your seed is only as powerful when that seed has built in it the desire to see your Perez's push out. And you can take second place. So again, the principle, there's peace for the seed. Seed is powerful within the context of its prioritization of the welfare or the advancement of its brothers. Right? But where's the disrespect for brotherly relationship, that seed loses its potential. Okay? That seed loses its potential. Now, okay, go back to page 9 of the new note. The context, uh, the, the, the heading, the context in which God favors Zion is one in which sons of God delight and take pleasure in other sons of God. Okay? Sons of God delight in and take pleasure in other sons of God. Now, some, I've learned this from Dr. Segi recently in his series on favor and acceleration. So this is a point that I've learned from him recently. He quotes Psalm 102, verse 13 and 14. Right? I'm, I'm quoting from the King James. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time is come. For thy servants, verse 14, take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. So verse 13 talks about favor. The time to favor Zion has come, right? And isn't it not so? Zion is the church, right? The most accurate place that the church can come to is a, is a pinnacle position called Zion. Now the set time, the if, the set time to favor Zion has come. And there's tremendous favor about to fall upon the church. Right? The season is ripe for that. 
It's a set time to give unfair advantage to the house of God. Dr. Siki calls favor God's affirmative action policy. Right? It's when God is biased, prejudiced in favor of his sons. And favor is unfair. Right? How did you get in? I was just favored. How did you get ahead? I was just favored. How did you break through? It was the favor of God. Um, how did you break through when your natural qualifications couldn't have got you there? Just the favor of God. Right? Favor, favor, favor will get you where natural things in the earth can't get you. We need the favor of God. And the Bible says, the set time to favor has come. But don't forget the next verse. The next verse says this. For why? Why is the favor coming? The word for means because, not so. Because in Zion, this principle persists. Your servants, the people in Zion, take great delight or great pleasure in her stones. What are stones? You and I are stones. Peter says we are living stones. Right? So when you can delight in your brother, you build up the conditions that God can favor Zion, the corporate, the corporate culture. Amen? So that is why I said Cain kills Abel. Why? Because Abel's offering is accepted and his is not. He could not celebrate the favor of God upon a brother. So when you can delight in each other and take real concern for the welfare of each other, guess what? You're going to start to walk in in favor. So when last did you seek out for the welfare of the stones? I know some stones look stoned. But seek out the welfare of your brother. Take deep care and concern for each other. Don't be so individualistic, so inward looking that you don't find time to inquire, how is my brother doing? Because God did ask Cain, where's your brother? In other words, locate him. Paul says, I couldn't find Titus. Leave the open door, find my brother. Paul passed where Cain failed. Because God asked Cain, where is he? As if God didn't know. Just wanted to find, locate what was happening in Cain's heart. Where is your brother? Cain's response is, am I his keeper? Right? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are. So, time to delight in the stones. The living stones. Not the brick and mortar, but the living stones that make up the house of the Lord. Um, and you will, you will, you know when you do this, all you're doing, you position yourself for favor. When you start to respect relationships, I mean, every single example we're using here, the theme is consistent, right? The, the, the emphasis is always the same. Position yourself accurately in your responses towards all people, both friends, family, and enemies, persecutors, detractors, whatever they might be, lots, brothers that walk away from you, after they've derived benefit from you, then they leave you. Just position yourself favorably towards everybody, and you're going to see the hand of the Lord, the favor of the Lord upon your life. Now, tell your neighbor, this is so easy. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, let me say, be qualified. It's not easy. Tell him, no, sorry, it's not easy. <laughs> okay, not easy. I'm saying the principle is easy to understand, eh? <laughs> but to walk it, it's going to cost you everything. You have to cross your jabbok like Jacob did. My brother is waiting to be reconciled. I'll empty myself of everything in a, in a bid to reconcile with my brother. And from that point on in Jacob's experience, the will of the Lord accelerates for for his life. Another uh, point, next point, because it bears reference to the one we've just discussed. We've, we've, we had this verse over and over again in the series. 
Psalm 122 verse 6 to 8 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that they, may pro- they, shall, they, they shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within your walls. Peace, sorry, and prosperity within your palaces. For my brethren and for my companions' sake, I will now say peace be within thee. So you just make a note, this is ESV version I'm quoting from there. ESV version. I forgot to put the NASB. The NASB says for verse 8, For my brothers and my friends, I will say. This one says my brothers and my companions. The NASB says for my brothers and my friends' sake, I will now say peace be within you. Now, listen carefully. Verse 6, we are called upon to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Right? Now, you and I are the, are the new Jerusalem. Not so. The church is the new Jerusalem. We've had these references before. But just write them there, if you, just for your own sake. Revelation 3.12 and Revelation 21.2. 3.12, talks about Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and it says it is the bride of Christ. So when the Bible says here, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, he's not praying for natural Israel. You must pray for the, the well-being of your brothers and sisters in the church. Now, it says, listen carefully, they shall prosper. Please, see, say this after me. They shall prosper. Now, it says, they shall prosper that love thee. Love who? Love the church. Love the brothers and sisters in the church. So pray for the peace of the house of the Lord. Pray for the peace of the body of Christ. Pray for its welfare. Pray for its well-being. Because if you love the church, you will prosper. If you don't love your brothers, you're not going to prosper. And I'm really serious. Love from your heart. Don't posture and position yourself politically correct. Love from your heart. It says, they shall prosper that love thee. Peace. Now this is, verse 7 is like a pronouncement. Right? It's like, a, I think it should have been in brackets. Like someone is declaring something over, over the church. Just imagine someone saying, peace be within your worlds, your walls, prosperity within your palaces. And the reason why the psalmist is praying this, he says, I'm doing this for the sake of my brothers and my friends in the house. Can you see that the disposition is one of well-being for the welfare of everybody in the house? So he's saying, and, and the psalmist says, them that do this, that love the church and pray for its peace and well-being, they prosper when their concern is for the, for the betterment of the corporate group. Amen? I tell you them, I wish you prosper. Your well-being. I really want to encourage you, have this heart and start even if there's needs amongst you, start to sow to each other. If you discern your brother as a need, bless him, cater for his need, do it practically. Right? Uh, if you discern uh, someone's in need, a home is in need, if it, it lies in your power, make the personal sacrifice to demonstrate. Listen, I have your well-being and your welfare at, at heart. Scripture says you personally are going to prosper if you have this. Now, those of you with the old notes, add in there another reference to this point. It's First Chronicles 12.18. We've had this before, but remember when there was this um, coming together to David at Hebron? Right? And let me quote it to you again. 
Remember David said when the groups came to, the one, to this particular group, he said, uh, do you come in peace? Because there was this defection from the house of Saul to the house of David. And David wasn't sure whether everyone is coming to him is coming with honorable motivations. He thought maybe there's some spies coming in to weaken his system. So do you come in peace? He says, if you come in peace, God will bless you. But if you don't come in peace, may God judge you. May God judge between me and you. Right? So a Messiah, the prophet in the one group, stands up and he says, yes, this is worse. The Spirit came upon a Messiah who was chief of the 30. And he said, now, these were mighty warriors. The Bible calls them mighty men of valor. These were warriors of note. So he says to David, we are yours, David, and we are with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace. Everyone say peace, peace. So look at his heart. He says, peace, peace to you, David. But also, I love this, he says, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. And then David received them and made them captains, heads of his army, of all his bands. This, these, these 30 warriors. And a Messiah being the head of this group. Notice what a Messiah says. Double shalom to you, David. Peace, peace to you, our spiritual father. I'm trying to make it contemporary. David's a spiritual father. So listen carefully. Because there's promotion that comes. David gives them chief positions. There's, 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 there's promotion and strategic function that is allotted to them quickly. But what got them this? Right? You know, if David didn't, if David was uh, some secular guy, David could have just said, hey, there's mighty men here. 30 of them. And you must read their credentials. These were bad dudes. These guys did things in war that make David's war exploits look like a Sunday school. The way the, the, the picnic, the way these guys operate. The, David knew a warrior when he saw. So he said, if you come in, in peace, you're fine. And the, the Spirit comes upon a Messiah, and a Messiah prophesies by the Spirit. First thing he says, you are our leader, our disposition towards you is that you have double peace. If anyone needs double peace, peace, peace be to you, O David. Peace to you, son of Jesse. Comma, and peace to all the others that are with you. Peace to everyone that helps you. Third point, because we can see that God is helping you. <laughs> I, like, I like the way this plays out. Peace, peace to you, son of David. Peace to everyone that helps you, because we can discern God is with you and God is helping you. You see, the thing that I really believe turned David's heart was two things. Yes, these guys are committed to me. But more so, these guys are committed to the other guys that are supporting me. It's fine to be committed to your father. But the challenge that I'm seeing in a lot of churches is that brothers aren't committed to brothers. It's fine to be committed to me. And let me just say this bluntly. Until you find your brother, you can never ever express true commitment to your father. These guys prove it. We are yours, O David. They're saying... Use all of our skill, our talent. We are here to protect you and your kingdom. And I think the thing, when David saw, yes, I believe they saw, he saw their commitment to him, but I, I believe the thing that caused David to give them chief positions was their commitment to the entirety of David's house. 30 guys. Listen, everyone said 30. 
there's 30 guys, and, and these are like your elite forces. These are like the SWAT team. These are like, the, these are like highly trained specialists on the ground. And their position is, if we come to you, we show your peace, double-fold your peace. If we come to you, we'll ensure the welfare of everyone that is with you. In other words, these guys were not just committed to protecting David. They were committed to protecting everybody else who's helping David, knowing that their training is above everybody else. So we're there for you, but we are there for others. When David saw that, David said, make you chief of all my bands. Come. You want a chief position in God's economy. You want a chief position in the will of the Lord. You've got to demonstrate this position of being committed to your being committed to your brothers. Amen? So I really want to encourage you. Read Psalm 122 again. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love you. Peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For my brethren and for my companions' sake, I will now say, peace be within you. Peace be within you. Amen.